Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Melinda Estridge with Long & Foster Real Estate in Bethesda, Maryland. Last year, she closed 70 transactions with a total sales volume of $40 million. Her average sales price was $571,000, of which 50% were buyers and 50% were sellers. She operates a team with eight members, three buyer agents, one office manager, closing manager, one listing manager, one leads manager, one business partner, and one team leader. Melinda Estridge is the team leader of the Estridge Group. She has been an agent for 34 years. In this call, Melinda talks about selling over $1 billion of real estate in her career, staying with the same company since day one, hiring and compensating a leads manager to follow up with internet leads, working her past client in Sphere of Influence database, farming different neighborhoods with different brands, using shells and templates to simplify her direct mail marketing, goodbye parties for sellers, dumpster donation and shredding day event, renovation, remodeling, and staging seminar, annual past client party, sharing marketing expenses with lenders and other vendors, time blocking, metrics, team dynamics, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Melinda. Thank you very much, Mike. Melinda, before we talk about what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Well, it's hard to remember back that far because it's been about 34 years, actually going on 35. When I graduated from college, I attended law school for a few years thinking that I would become a lawyer but I was going to law school, holding down two jobs at the time, and my father had been in commercial real estate for Standard Oil for years and had tried to get me interested in getting my real estate license to possibly go into either the residential side or commercial side. And so I did that, figured I'd do real estate on somewhat of a part-time basis, and it began to really work well for me, and so I did not finish law school thinking that at some point I could go back and do that, but uh, real estate started to go very, very well for me, and I guess the rest is history, as they say. I know it's been a while back, but do you recall, did you have a fast start or a slow start? I was in the business in the 70s, where real estate was probably more even keeled than I've seen it since I've been in the business, but I would say it was relatively slow. I joined the company I'm with presently. I've been with them the entire time I've been in the business, 
and I attended their first training course. They didn't even really have one to initiate realtors that were licensed. This was uh, pre any sort of elaborate MLS. Most of your information was disseminated with booklets and pictures and word of mouth. And so I really was in the very beginning stages. Computers certainly were not used at that point or owned by agents. So you really had to do a lot of networking and finding out properties through the limited source of multiple listing they had at the time. So I think it was hard for anyone to really catapult into the business. And so it really did take a few years. I remember working a couple of other jobs while I was starting just to survive. And so it probably was about four to five years before things started really clicking. And again, there was so little training, so few conferences that were out of the area. You pretty much were given the two-page contract at the time and your broker saying to you, if you need help, let me know. But there were no teams, no rainmakers that were willing to hire you. At that point, very few mentors. There were agents in the office that would answer questions for you, but you really were on your own. There are so much better resources today for agents getting into the business that were leaps and bounds ahead of where we were all those many years ago. How many homes did you sell in your best year, and what year was that? That was 2006, which I think anyone in the business then knew that it was a very frenetic market. Uh, Business uh, was more limited in the fact that the numbers of houses that sold were a bit less than they had been in previous years. Um, and it was very difficult at that point for buyers to buy houses. Things were flying off the market, and prices were just going up by leaps and bounds. Um, We did, though, do uh, in excess of 100 transactions, and that was our best year with about 65-plus million in production, and that was only with a team of three. So we were working very hard at that point. I think I've been told that you have sold a billion dollars of real estate in your career. Is that correct? I have. Wow. <laughs> so so you're uh, in the billion-dollar agent club. <laughs> Length of time and years in the business. It all adds up. That's still pretty phenomenal. Congratulations. Thank you. Where is Bethesda, Maryland? Bethesda is a city that abuts Washington, D.C., And we do mostly the, not only in the city of Washington, D.C., but what they call inside the Beltway. So we are licensed, as are many agents in our area, in three jurisdictions, Virginia, Maryland, and D.C., because we cross the line into D.C. so often. There are numerous neighborhoods that travel from Maryland into D.C. as a continuous area there. We do go outside the Beltway from time to time, but I would say we all work within an approximately 10-mile radius around the city. I probably work closer in than some of the buyer agents who tend to work with clients that the further outside of the city that you get, almost like any major metropolitan area, the prices are, you know, less expensive. And so the determination for people coming to the area and working in the city is, you know, how much space are you willing to forego for, you know, being closer in the city and do you want to go further out and get more for the money? So we have gone as far as right outside what is called Montgomery County and into northern Virginia if people, in fact, want a little bit more for the money. 
Describe your current real estate market. Well, it really does vary from township to township. In the district, it's so difficult to deal with averages because whether you're talking about the kind of property, I would say the least inexpensive property that you're likely to achieve in our area is probably in the 300 range. And then, of course, it can go as high as 15 to 20 million. So I would say for us that the average price in Bethesda and Chevy Chase and those areas right outside the district would be somewhere around, oh, I'd say 800 to a million two. And within the district, again, for single-family homes, it's broken up into the different areas of the city. And some areas are, you know, not less than, I would say, 700,000. And some areas, as you get further east in the city, you know, you can get something for as inexpensive as two to 300,000. And again, those may be condos or row houses. It's a pretty varied selection of properties. It sounds like to me that your market area, the area that you work, would probably be considered higher than average, say, looking out across the rest of the nation. You think that's true? Well, the prices in, in the district, average price for home is on the high side. What I deal with here is not typically a luxury market. And I was saying before that luxury in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area is probably $3 million to $15 million. And there are agents that work pretty exclusively in those price ranges. We're dealing in our, you know, our buyer agents and uh, my husband and I anywhere from the 300 range up to about 2 million. I would say in the listing realm, I probably do 800 to a million too most frequently, but again, that's not luxury market here. Unfortunately, our area has become so expensive that I would call that sort of an upper middle class price range. When they would look at what they would buy for a million two to a million three here, <laughs> you're probably looking at 2,600 square feet, three to four bedrooms, two and a half baths. So it's not the property that most people may envision nationwide. Do you have a niche or a specialization in your market? I would say that because I geographically farm, I do do a lot of business in those farm areas. But because I've been in the business for so long and our client base is so varied, I find myself doing business in Virginia, D.C., and Maryland, different kinds of properties, different kinds of situations. I do travel kind of all over the place with my client base. But in particular, I think the geographic farming that I do does tend to more heavily weight, you know, the areas of Bethesda, Chevy Chase, and and the District of Columbia. Please list for us the top three to five ways that you're generating leads in business. Sure. Outside of the farming that I previously talked about, which has been very successful, we really keep in constant contact with our past clients and sphere of influence. And we also have done quite a bit of business with a stealth website that we purchased a monthly subscription to called Tiger Leads. I'm sure a number of people on the call will recognize the name. I've heard of organizations such as Boomtown uh, as well as Tiger Leads and others. We happened to meet the owner of Tiger Leads years ago and became involved in more of the early stages. It does have exclusivity. You buy a zip code, 
and no other agent is allowed to own that zip code, which kind of appealed to us. So we actually bought the District of Columbia and a majority of that area. And we really have made that system very profitable. It's not without the time and effort that you have to invest. I know sometimes people use these programs and say they aren't working or it didn't work well for them. But I might attribute that to the fact that lead follow-up and timely follow-up is absolutely critical when you invest that kind of money into that sort of program. And so there are things that we'll talk about on this call that helped us succeed with that program and succeed very well and to make it so profitable. You've been doing this business for 34 years. I imagine you've, you've done a lot of things well and sometimes things did not work out. Could you tell us what your worst marketing experience was, something you would recommend people do not do? Well, I think I've probably tested every kind of marketing <laughs> that there is because I'll see something that interests me and want to test it or find out what the return is. I would definitely say to everyone listening that charting your success and dollars into whatever kind of marketing you do to look at you know where your source of, of business and income is coming from to equate whether or not money spent was money worthwhile. I think all of the SEO, search engine optimization, both programs and quote-unquote scams that are out there where you know you invest a lot of money with these companies that you see at conventions or they solicit over the Internet, that they're going to improve your SEO and they can do all these things to make it all happen. I spent a lot of money with several of those companies to no avail, and I put my trust in my website provider who I am on the phone with an hour each week to talk about what we can do to try to drive people to the site and what really works and what doesn't. And he's just an honest, straightforward person. And we've done some things where I can see results and and chart that. But the smoke and mirrors of SEO and the companies that promise the world, and it's a great deal of money, typically, you know, they're not showing the results. And so that was the first thing. I think also one of the best lessons I've ever learned, and luckily I didn't do a lot of it for very long, was what we call ego advertising. And I think more and more people that watch marketing and and the success rate have learned that talking about yourself, how great you are, you're number one, how many homes you've sold, you know, how great your team is and so forth is what the public really doesn't care that much about. It's interesting to me that someone is number one in something, whether it's a zip code, a style of home, you know, they can figure out that they're number one somewhere. And I think what's important to the public, because the public perceives almost every agent that walks through the door as a quote-unquote top agent, whether they are or not, due to the marketing that they're pumping out. What I think is, is really important is to give people something of benefit on a regular basis and really focusing on people you've done business with, your spheres of influence, or a geographic farm where people know you. I think if people are just starting in the business and they want their name to be recognized, that using magazines as a vehicle and focusing on a listing might get name recognition out of the gate. But I think once you're somewhat established, there's a much less expensive way of reaching the public. And once you're basically known, I don't think anyone needs to run these ads 
on billboards or magazines or any of that, which is what I call sort of cold business. It's name recognition, but it doesn't necessarily deliver you the business itself. It might get you in the door, possibly, but then it's really up to you to have some sort of contact with that client in order for them to make that move to hire you. I'd like to talk about your farming, your geographic farming. Sounds like you've had quite a bit of success with it. First of all, how long have you been geographic farming? I would say probably at least 30 years. I think one of the only ways to reach people prior to the Internet really taking off was to direct mail to people, and I still feel direct mail consistently with items of value and just sold, just listed cards have still worked incredibly well, and as we chart our results, are consistently bringing in the business. Now, I've done it for such a long period of time that I'm known in certain neighborhoods, and so you don't have to send as many things as you used to, but giving information about someone's neighborhood, about the things that they're interested in 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 regard to real estate, and then your signs throughout the neighborhood is probably you know, the strongest marketing method that you can have. And I know there are companies that try to target who's most likely to move in the next few years and to sort of sequester your mailings based on those statistics. But I feel that marketing to everyone in a neighborhood, and especially if you choose neighborhoods where there's a fairly transient situation, is without a doubt, whether someone moves or not, They recognize your name and then give it to other people. There's so many times when we're recommended by someone and the person that recommends us, we don't even know who they are. So word of mouth and name recognition goes a long way. And so I feel that if it's done effectively and you watch your dollars with geographic farming, sort of intermingled with community events, a little door knocking, and and just keeping in touch with the people in the neighborhood and some other things we'll talk about later. It can be a very effective, cost-effective way for someone to get started really trying to develop a neighborhood and be the person and the go-to person when someone thinks of buying or selling real estate in that neighborhood. You made it sound as though you have multiple farms. How many farms do you have? Well, I would say probably at this point about four. And, you know, farms don't have to be geographic. We have one farm that I started very early on that I became very well known in and that I expanded to areas outside that area but not very far away. So that was sort of incorporated. Then I took on the neighborhood that I live in, which I never had really done for a long time, and went so far as to create a neighborhood website for sellers in particular, because I'd always seen websites that appealed to buyers, and I wanted to do one that really was seller-based as a community resource, which I'll talk more about later as well. And then, of course, we have the farm of past clients and sphere of influence that don't necessarily live in one of these geographic farms, but that we disseminate information to, you know, every six to six weeks to two months to stay in touch, bring them up to date about real estate and the market, and to introduce properties and so forth. And we use that in conjunction with some Internet emails and so forth. But again, direct mail to those people, especially if they don't have Internet or use Internet often, if they're elderly 
or just in conjunction with emailing. We find that when you do mass emails or have newsletter, a lot of people unsubscribe, and I still want to reach those people. So I certainly don't want to bombard people with emails because they opt out all the time, and we want to keep people's emails for important things. So direct mail is, appears to be the answer to that. On the geographic farm, how did you pick these areas? How did you pick the farm? Well, I stumbled into one of them early on in that it appeared to be a neighborhood that there was National Institute of Health and Navy Medical was very close to it. And also, I was there before the subway even went in, but that was where the targeted subway was going to be, not far from that community. It was made up of international and people that worked downtown so and, and some military, so it was a bit transient, which I knew was important. So it was, at that point, about 735 people. And so, you know, I just thought, okay, this will be a, a good area. I didn't do the diagnostics that I did later down the road, and I know people are interested to know that, well, you want to look at a neighborhood where hopefully an agent doesn't have it totally sewed up and something where people do move on a fairly regular basis so that there's going to be enough business in there to make it worth your while. So those are all things that are pretty easily discovered at this juncture in our world of information (laughs) and uh, the access that we have to those bits of information. So you want to choose something where there's fairly good turnover and, you know, not so large, in my opinion, that somebody is overwhelmed to begin with. I don't think there's anything wrong with starting with a smaller neighborhood and even the one that you live in and then branching out from there. The reason that I have three or four farms is that I want the turnover and for the farming to pay for itself. And so our mailing list at this point is probably up to about 10,000 plus of the direct mail farming that we do. The 10,000 plus, is, is that just the geographic farm portion? Geographic farming and then the past clients that have bought in other areas, that wouldn't, you know, include absolutely everyone on the mailing list, but past clients in the geographic farming. Could you break out at the geographic farming? Do you know how many people you're sending to that are just in your geographic farm? Geographic farming is probably about 6,000 to 7,000. So it's grown over the years. You started around 700 and now it's about 10 times that big, almost 7,000. How are you contacting the 7,000 people in these geographic farms? You said you're contacting them by direct mail. How often are you contacting them, and what are you sending? Well, I used to mail more frequently. Now we do it about every six weeks. We found that we're able to do that because we are well-known in the area, and I found a company that has worked very well, Real Marketing, Inc. They're out of California that for postage and addressing and content on either a two- or four-page glossy mailer is $1.35 in total. So that was cost-effective. You can get a lot of information in those mailers. I typically write an article for each one. I'll write several articles at a time so that you know we can have the mailings ready to go. They do all the drop-in about properties that have sold with a pinpoint map, and we have pictures of the properties that we personally have sold with a link 
to show the neighborhood all the properties that have sold in their neighborhood if they want to go further than that. So it's a very informative and educational mailer, along with some human interest in it. And, of course, it pushes everyone to the appropriate website that we have connected with the community. And so that, in addition, it's the vehicle that I use to announce the community seminars that I may have or the community service I may be providing to that neighborhood. So it's very encompassing of everything we do. Now, you mentioned individual neighborhood websites. On all of these 7,000 pieces that you mail out every six weeks, are they all exactly the same or are you breaking them out into these subgroups so that they'll have this individualization on them? Yes, we break them out into subgroups. I have a color scheme for one neighborhood and a color scheme for another, and I match my websites to those as well as my mailers. So with the neighborhood of Chevy Chase, I bought numerous domain names early on. One was ChevyChaseLiving.com, and another was LiveInBethesda.com, and then the first neighborhood that I started with was MaplewoodAltaVista.com. I'm glad that I bought those early on because they become harder to get as agents hear that, you know, this is a good thing to do and often purchase a lot of them and don't use them. You can get on mailing lists for when an agent finally dumps a domain name if you've been looking for one, but this sort of points to the website itself rather than Melinda Estridge or the Estridge Group. So I, I really do try to parlay that the best way I can with Chevy Chase, for instance, the Chevy Chase Living is on all of the mailers. It is the website. It is the rider on my signs. It's all the same color schemes. It's the color scheme of the open house signs so that I'm really trying to brand, you know, for that neighborhood. And in Bethesda, the first area that I started farming, which was Maplewood Alta Vista, I have a place on my website, the Estridge Group website, which is the main website I use for everything else. But if someone types in maplewoodaltavista.com, there is a portal within the Estridge Group website that leads them to a landing page, which is specifically for maplewoodaltavista.com. And so we post the most recent sales there, the featured home on that website, and neighborhood spotlights on that subsect of our main website. So that was going to be one of my questions, whether you have separate websites for each of these neighborhoods. It sounds like you have a subcategory or subpages in your website that target those particular neighborhoods. Is that correct? They do, although the Chevy Chase Living stands on its own for that one particular city. Back to the, to the farm itself, on that direct mail piece, are there any calls to action? Are, are you asking people to do anything? I think that there's always calls to action, simply the ones that have the link that say if you want to see all homes that have sold in your neighborhood, you know, for the last six weeks, click on this link. And, of course, we can see how many people clicked on the link. We also have real market reports, which, again, lead to the website, which gives statistics of days on market, all the sort of nuts and bolts of what's been happening in real estate. And there are people that do use that. We've even had see what your home is worth. It's a core fact 
situation where people can get sort of a generated CMA. I know everyone is familiar with those. And of course, we always say, call us with any information. I I think people are pretty savvy these days that it's good to offer them some things that they might not get elsewhere where they can go to a website to see what's going on. I started for human interest on some of these mailers to spotlight someone in the community. So in addition to all the nuts and bolts of real estate and the facts and figures and what my neighbor's home sold for, which everyone's interested in, you would take a neighbor or someone in the neighborhood that was doing something special for the neighbors, whether it's cleaning up the neighborhood or have a particularly special yard or it's helping with a cause. In Chevy Chase, there's an organization called Chevy Chase at Home, which is helping older people age in place in their homes. And so I did an article about that particular person one month. So it's sort of a neighborhood spotlight where you give just a bit of information on the mailer and then to read more, go to this website. So we've gotten some play from that because people are interested to know what their neighbors are doing. And again, it just makes it more personal and more targeted and you are interested in the neighborhood and giving kudos to the people that make the neighborhood a special place to live. You mentioned that you're doing different color schemes for each of these neighborhoods, and I understand you're branding that neighborhood. It seems to me that that'd be a little more expensive, though. Why did you choose to do these multiple brandings rather than just putting it all under the umbrella of you, Melinda Estridge? Because I found that target marketing, everyone wants the specialist in their neighborhood. And when I started to become too broad, I started to lose a little momentum. I did so well in the very first neighborhood that I farmed because everyone associated me with that neighborhood. People want to know you know their neighborhood, the ins and outs of their neighborhood, whether you live there or not. And so to try to encompass all of that was was losing that specialization. So if you do your mailers, and, and Real Markets was great with this, that you know, you really just have the shells. I really only mail three, well, I should say four shells because one is to the very first farm I did. The other is to the part that I expanded into. One's for Chevy Chase and then one is for the Sphere. But once those shells are laid out, all you have to do is drop in information. So they have everything sort of graphically done with the header, the picture, and everything. And all you have to do is just supply content, and then it's not more expensive to print them up because it's all done ahead of time. So on each of these shells, you're branding yourself as the area specialist? Yes. Is there any other way that you're contacting the people in the neighborhood? You, you have to direct mail. Is there anything else you're doing to get in front of those folks? Yes. When we sell a home in any of these neighborhoods, I know Michael Mayer, who a lot of people, they may recognize his name, but he became very successful with doing housewarming parties for people that bought properties. But I was interested in doing business in the areas that I was farming. And so when someone sold their home, we offered to do a goodbye party for that seller. And so with the seller's permission, we invite 
as many neighbors as they're interested in, not only the people, they can also invite some personal people too, but it's more the block of people that they know and around the block. So we typically have anywhere from 15 to 30, 35 people that show up that are almost primarily neighbors. And it's a wonderful way because we invite the new buyer for them to meet their immediate neighbors. It certainly is a terrific way to meet other neighbors. And especially when we've staged a home, they can see the work that we've done and how we prepared the house for sale. We provide the refreshments and a wine tasting while we're there. But it's a great way to interact with neighbors, the people that bought the property. And interestingly enough, rarely does the other agent attend. I'm not sure why, but um, it also gives us a great opportunity to get to know that buyer and for the buyer to meet and get to know the seller so that when you go to settlement, everyone is very familiar with everyone else and it's great for them to already know the neighbors when they move in. And that's a relatively low-cost situation there, too. And we send out invitations. We also, every open house we have, we send invitations to the neighbors personally, and we let them come sometimes about a half an hour to an hour earlier than the open house to give them a private showing. So again, it's letting those neighbors, we may send out a 100 of those invitations. And then we also do some community events, which I'm sure you'll get to for the neighbors as well. And I'm not above knocking on doors, even after all these years in the business. If I'm traveling from home and see somebody's property that looks great or they've repainted the house or taken down a tree or something, I might drop a little personal note that I keep in the card that I tuck into their mailbox, which is personalized for that neighborhood, just saying, I noticed that you just painted your house, it looks great, and then just sign my name. Or if I happen to see a neighbor in the yard, I might stop and chat. If we have an open house, some of our buyer agents will knock on some of the doors to invite neighbors in person or to let them know about a listing that we're getting on the market in the near future. So all of that has been, you know, it's it's the old things that we always did and the personal contact that I think makes a difference. Well, you've mentioned these community events a few times. It sounds kind of like it's tied into your geographic farming. Tell us more about the community events. For years, I've been doing a dumpster donation and shredding day. I know other agents have sort of parlayed that. I've been doing it for, goodness, 20 years plus, I think. I started with hiring a dumpster in a neighborhood for people to be able to get rid of things that they couldn't get rid of in their regular trash pickup. And it became so incredibly popular that our dumpster was full in almost an hour, and we had to move two dumpsters. And I started to do it twice a year, and one for one community and one for the other. And, you know, we also invite past clients that live not far from there to make use of it as well. But we then added on the donation truck because there were so many people bringing things to the dumpster that weren't really trash. And you'd find the neighbor saying, oh, I'll take that and I can use that. So I thought, okay, this is a great situation to have a donation scenario there as well so that when people brought things, they would say, is this donatable? If not, they could take it right over to the dumpster. And the last part of it was the shredder because people kept asking me if I could bring a shredder as well. So you have all three trucks there at the same time. We do it from 9 to 11 once a year. I let people know about it plenty in advance, and it's also a good way to collect people's email. 
because you tell them that although you try to announce it in your flyer, that if they really want to find out and be reminded, you know, give us their email so that we can let them know about the uh, day. And everyone's very willing to give their email if that's what it's for. And then, of course, they go on our list to find out about new property that we're listing in their neighborhood. So people are always glad to get that. You just want to be sure you don't pester people with emails about yourself and every open house you have and everything you're doing because they become quickly disinterested. If it's a house in their neighborhood, if it's information that they're going to be interested in, they're fine. But if you start barraging people with emails, you know, it's sort of like cold calling at night. They just hit the button and say, I want out of this. So I'm very careful about what I email and how often and which sets of people that I email it to. But it does work when you have an open house to email everyone in that city that you have an open house in that city because it it really does. It's amazing the people that will come to see it that you had no idea were even looking that might have been a past client. And this year, I might add to the dumpster donation and shredding day an opportunity for people to dispose of some paint cans and the fluorescent lights that you're not or old incandescent lights that you're no longer able to throw in the trash and batteries. There's been a huge outcry for that. And although that's going to be relatively expensive, it may be worth doing it, you know, every other year as a help for people because we get a lot of that request. The other event that I did for a few years now, which has been incredibly successful, because we were being asked so often about what repairs and renovations and staging is worthwhile when you're selling or getting ready to sell, I'm called out often about, do I put in a bathroom? Do I do this? Do I do that? If I'm selling in a couple of years, will I get my money out of it? And so I started a renovation, remodel, and staging seminar that I held. I belong to a country club, and they have a very inexpensive, anyone can do it at a woman's club or any sort of civic association where you can rent the room out inexpensively, have very light refreshments. I typically do it after work on a weekday, and I either want to do it in the spring or fall when people are thinking about doing things or their projects a few months out. And I would get a landscaper, a renovation person that I liked a lot that adds additions and so forth. I invited a stager and we would all have before and after slides. I I started taking slides or pictures, I should say, of properties before and after. I would come in and shoot them and then come back once they were completely staged and renovated from exactly the same angle, whether it was an inexpensive stage or the full boat, and I would separate it out into kitchens and family rooms and basements, and we would take things that were god-awful and make them look amazing. And the wow factor when you're looking at the before and afters, when you have slides in front of people, and then the cost of that particular job, in addition to taking some slides from other vehicles on the web and so forth where you know, here's an inexpensive thing you can do with a laundry room or an unfinished basement or something that was unattractive. People were so interested in that, and the stager was able to answer questions about the approximate cost of moving furniture in and what they do. The landscaper was able to show before and after pictures of curb appeal 
and I certainly would take pictures of houses on the street as I just would be riding around that looked great from the front or needed help so that people could see what was going to be important, whether they planned to sell in a few months, a few years, or even way down the line. And the person that added additions to talk about what the latest trends were, the work that they did before and after of their jobs, and again, whether or not it made sense to do a big addition if you were moving in a couple of years. And of course, we had handouts from the National Association about the percentage return for adding bathrooms, kitchens, and so forth. But it was pretty easy to convince people, especially when I could say I gave a price of some, to someone of about 600000 if they didn't lift a finger. And we put in eighty to 90000 and they had six contracts and sold at 825000 You know, that's real money, and I'm more than paid for myself and the stager. And they didn't even have to be involved. So it can be five to 13000 or it can be a huge project. But if you let people know that you can handle that level of work and actually make people money, people are very interested in that. And they want to know, am I just going to enjoy this or is it going to add value? And so we had probably 100 people to that seminar, which of course was the neighborhood I invited, in addition to past clients and sphere of influence. So we had a nice collection of people a really good question and answer session. And I wasn't selling anybody anything. You know, I was showing them what could be done and the services that we offer. And so not only did the service providers get a lot of business out of it, I can absolutely equate five listings that I got from it in the year that I did it. You know, and they were all around the $800 million mark, so it was well worthwhile. So I now do that every year, and I do one that sort of incorporates, it's kind of a central location, this club, where everyone in all these farm areas will come to one of the sessions, and no one knows which neighborhood it is, That you know, because you're making it very general. Do most of the properties that you sell, do they require renovations, remodeling, and staging? There are very few properties that I walk into that are ready to put on the market, and if any agent is listening to this, they know. I mean, there are some that are much worse than others, but people live in properties differently than you want to sell them. And I know that some agents say to potential clients, look, you don't need to do anything because people are going to do what they want to do and don't worry about it. But I couldn't disagree with that more. I think like selling a car or any other product, when you spiff it up and put a little money into it, typically you double, triple, or quadruple your money out of it. I think the X and Y generation, who are many of our buyers today, time is their ultimate commodity. They don't want to lift a finger. They don't have the vision to see what it's going to be. They double down the price of what they think something's going to cost if you don't do it. So if people have broken seals on their double-pane windows, if carpeting is old, if the painting is, is a different color in every room, if the hardwood floors that are a real bonus these days are not refinished and look old and tired, the house is very cluttered, there's too much stuff, it really takes its toll on the value and the price. If people can just put a little time and effort in, they can maximize their dollar. I mean, I've seen it over and over again. So I really, I mean, I'll certainly ask sellers when I go in, are you interested 
in any suggestions that I may have to increase the value of your home. If they say to me, nope, I just want to sell it as is, then I won't go into it during the presentation because they obviously have thrown up a bit of a wall and you don't want to push too hard for that at the outset. But I would say most people want your opinion about how they're going to make their home more valuable, especially if they bought in the height of the market. And also the resources that you have to help them declutter and donate and where to store things and, you know, how they're going to make all of it work while they're living there. So we've come up with a pretty good system to make all that work. And because I have this slideshow presentation that I use at my renovation seminar, I can show people examples of the work we do and give them the, the investment price, what we sold it for and what it would have sold for, had they not put any money into it. And that's pretty compelling for sellers. And so even if they say no to start with, as we get further into it, I might come back and say, all right, here's the price if you just don't do anything. But if you might be willing to invest this, we could bring you this price. And it's at that moment, especially if we're handling a lot of that work, that people say, well, you know what, that's probably worth it. And that money is important to us especially if they think that you can handle all of that without them getting too involved and to make it happen quickly. It's all also a way to get full commissions. I think if you can offer those services and you have the system in place, it can be very easy to talk people into doing it. I have people sometimes go away for three to four days and everyone moves in and takes care of things. And so when they get back, it's, it's basically done. So it's worked out very well for us. Let's move on to Internet Leads. You, you mentioned you have an Internet Leads program. You've been using Tiger Leads and Stealth Sites. It sounds like the program's been working for you, but you figured out how to tweak it so that it is successful. What have you done to make that program work? Well, I think with any lead generating program, I think if anyone works anything hard enough, it's going to be fruitful. I think it's very hard when agents get busy to follow up quickly. Agents have tried every methodology, whether it's having an agent on call, whether it's having the up person that's answering every phone call that comes in. Because we're a relatively small team, it was hard to get the buyer agents in, not knowing if calls were coming in on a regular basis. But what we chose to do, especially because the Internet leads often were reaching out at later hours and on the weekends, we used to have a buyer agent who became somewhat disabled because he injured his back. And so he was not able to go out and show property and spend the hours physically that was necessitated by the job. He ended up moving to Florida. And so he's done a lot of website business, started his own company that was web-based. But we approached him probably five or six years ago about being a leads manager for us. And it was relatively new to the industry at that point that we decided to pay him an hourly rate and then we put him on a schedule for every appointment that he generates, there's a certain amount of money and then for every settlement that occurs, he's paid a certain amount of money as well. So he has some skin in the game. But he used to be an actor. He's extremely good on the phone, very good with scripts and dialogues. And there's another top agent in New York, Patrick Lilly, 
that also happened to hire an actor that is sort of his leads manager person as well. They're very engaging. The follow-up is quick. Rejection doesn't seem to bother them very much. But with Tiger Leads, you're able to look at when people are re-logging in, how often they've been in, exactly what they're looking at, how long they've been looking at it, what they've marked as favorites. And because the program is so inclusive, Tom's first reach to them, which is always by email, is that I'm not a real estate agent, which he isn't. I'm just here to help you use the site better, that I do work for a real estate team in the Washington area. If you do decide to move or buy something, we just would like the opportunity to interview you if we could. So it's very low-key, low-pressure. They do consult with him about areas and ask his opinion about certain areas and neighborhoods and so forth. You know, how far from D.C. is this? And because he was our buyer agent and lived here, he's very familiar with the areas. So because he works at odder hours, he's often in front of that computer in the evening and sometimes on weekends. He's been terrific with keeping in touch with hundreds of people. So that's really his focus all day long. And once he bonds with the people, and, you know, you may have to make 50, 60 phone calls to get one person that engages, but, you know, he's willing to do that. And that person generates quite a bit of money if they end up buying here. But when I left it to my buyer agents to follow up, they just weren't following up. So they would get busy. They'd be out with clients. And to be able to go into the computer when they got home at night and start calling, it was better when someone was on the program to call them at that point, and that's what Tom is able to do. Then he can deliver the appointment to the buyer agents, qualified, ready to go, and ready to come into the office for a meeting. And so the buyer agents love it, and as a result of that, with the split that I pay them, they pay an extra percentage off the top of that lead for it being delivered to them as a qualified buyer. Would you mind sharing with us what percent they're paying for that service, for having that set up? Well, we'll charge an extra 20% off the top of their commission for having a Tiger lead. I assume that that's not the same percent that you pay the Tom, because you're taking some of that money to use to get those leads. We pay Tom $15 an hour, and we up that. We used to pay him 10 now we pay him 15 because he's done such a good job. And then we pay him $50 for an appointment that he creates that actually come into the office, and then $300 on each closing that he does. So it's all flat fee. Yes. So he gets an hourly income and then for the face-to-faces and closed deals. And so he probably made about thirty-five to 36000 last year. And we chart, and I know we're going into that later too, but the profitability of Tiger, we pay $3,800 a month for the area that we've purchased from Tiger. And we are quadrupling, more than quadrupling that profit margin, just leaps and bounds, you know, on an average. So, you know, it's been very, pro- and that's, that's to me personally, not what the buyer agent gets, if that makes sense. You know, that's profit margin to me. So it's even higher now because we were giving so many leads. That's another thing we chart. How many of these buyer leads we're giving to our preferred lenders? And so we keep 
track of how many leads we give them versus how many leads they actually do the loan for. So we convince them to sign up for Tiger Leads because they can work the back room as well whenever they want to start sending information to those people about pre-qualifying them and, and working with them, you know, whether they choose to work with the Estridge Group or not. So we get $650 from four lenders now. So that's been a huge, that offsets the cost of our 3800 a month. And they're happy to do it. Sure, they're co-marketing with you. Yes. But I cannot stress enough the quickness with which you respond to a lead, which I think is impossible for most busy agents to be out there. And even if you have agents on a pattern that, okay, for a couple of hours they can answer the leads, you just never know when they're coming in. And to have someone that's full-time just doing that and gotten very good at it, and it's the same person all the time that they're responding to. So many of them said, oh, I've talked to Tom forever, and he's just great. And, you know, he makes a, a very good and easy segue and is able to match the agents up with a particular person. If he feels strongly that a person is a particular uh, personality, you know, he's even been good at matching them with people in our group. How fast is Tom responding to the lead? Oh, I'd say within a half an hour, if not immediately. Because he's got that window up on his computer all day long. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Now, you said he's responding by email. Is he also responding with a phone call? He starts by email saying that, you know, he certainly respects their privacy. But then he'll follow up with a phone call. And I think the fact that it's not an agent calling them, he's also been texting people, which seems to work out well. People will often respond to a text before they answer a phone call. How quickly is he making the phone call or the text? If he's on the computer watching, you know, obviously he's allowing them to be on for a little bit without swooping in immediately. But I would say within 10 to 15 minutes of them being online. And he often, they have what they call a last login. So when people have come back to the site again, those are people often that he'll pick up the phone and call or text. He makes this initial email. He tries to make an initial contact either by phone or text. And what does he do after that as far as his follow-up schedule? Well, he'll keep making contact. He'll probably contact someone up to five times. And then if there's no response from them, he may not reach out to them again until there's another login. Now, we also have a way to send people informative information because we have quite a few emails. So let's say there's been a rise in interest rates or something that's happened in the market, you know, that that might be of interest to maybe uh, 70, 80 people he's been keeping in contact with. We can access those emails and, and shoot an email to those people. Anything else you think an agent should know if they were looking at bringing in a leads manager? I think it's hard to find the right person as it is any team member's. I think getting the right team and the right person in the position is everything, as I'm sure many people realize. 
and there can be a, a great deal of trial and error. I mean, Tom is a virtual person, so someone has to make someone accountable. I mean, he has forms he fills out, even though we trust him very well, of how many calls he makes, what's happened, you know, to give us sort of a rundown, if not every day, at the end of the week. So we see how many calls he's making and, and which of those has worked. And then you can certainly tell by the success rate. If a leads manager is not bringing anyone in or complaining, then they either don't have the right script, the right attitude, the right skills, or just aren't working it as hard as they should be. So finding people that have been telemarketers or people that are local that know the area well but aren't interested in doing this uh, full-time or being an agent would be, I think telemarketers are an excellent person to look into. They don't care about rejection. They're able to make the phone calls. And if they're engaging and good on the phone, and you certainly can tell by listening to people when you are interviewing them, you know, how they do on the phone. You know, you could role play with them or have someone call them and see how they do. Do you know what Tom's DISC personality is? I would say he's probably S primarily. The one beautiful thing about Tom is his ability to speak well and learn scripts very well. You know, his memorization is terrific. But he's an S. He's a very nurturing, caring person. I think that's a good personality type to have in any sort of customer care situation. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears again, and let's talk about your past clients and sphere of influence. You've been doing this quite a while. You, you have a large past client database. Let's try to break that down. How many people are, are in your database that are past clients? We have a database of over 7,000 people. So I would say probably over 7,000 of those would be past clients, people that we've worked with at some point or another. How many are, say, sphere of influence? You know, that's an interesting figure, and I'm not absolutely sure of that. I mean, you know, what's interesting is that most of our sphere of influence have been people that we've dealt with in one way or another, whether it's answered questions about real estate or gotten referrals from or lenders or mortgage people or parents of a past client. So everyone's interrelated in, in that way. I think your sphere of influence, you're always hoping that at some point they'll do business with you. So to know the exact breakdown of how many people we've done business with versus never done business with but are in our sphere of influence, maybe 10%. Do you ever remove people from your database? And if so, why? I think it's always good to scrub your database because I call people in the database so often. If someone, for instance, let's say a buyer agent sells a property to someone in a neighborhood like or a city, Silver Spring, for instance, which is outside of our area. And it's been two to three years and I've called them on their birthdays and house anniversaries and left messages and sometime reached them. They've been on our mailing list. And then I find out because when we sell someone a home, we immediately create a Google alert for that address. Sometimes it's the only way to know that someone's put their house on the market but you'll always have that address. And so if anything ever happens with that address, if they rent it, if they sell it, it'll pop up on your Google Alerts. So let's say that property comes up and, and I see that they have it for sale, they've sold it from someone else, or I just happen to be making my calls 
and find out that they had listed their property, that their numbers no longer work. Because as you're sending out blast emails for client parties or for anything with your entire client base, you will get back numerous emails that are defunct or changed, and it's a perfect opportunity to follow up to see if people are still, if I haven't heard from someone in a long time, I'll have Tom, the leads manager, look to see that they still live in the property. Or, you know, if, if it didn't come up as a Google alert, because we only started doing that over the past three to four years, if they sold it and moved on and did not call back and the buyer agent had sold them the property, we will simply take out all their contact information. We don't remove them from the database because, unfortunately, in using Top Producer, if you remove someone completely, it's kind of a glitch in their system, but everyone associated with that transaction drops out as well. And I don't know if people knew that. So you might be eliminating a lender and an attorney and the other side of that transaction and the whole closing. So we're very careful about completely deleting contacts. Plus, it's always nice to know that you had done business or sold someone a home in the future. It's just you take out their email, copy it to the notes. You can either leave their numbers in or get rid of them. But under contact types, rather than past client, we would just say lost contact with client or no further contact, if that makes sense. So for people, and also people that are deceased, you know, you, you want to obviously uh, deceased, no further contact. So when you're calling your database on a regular basis and you're sending out blast emails about important events or even direct mail, we love to send invitations by mail for client parties because, again, they're returned to you if the person no longer lives there, if they've moved, rather than the email always working because there's a lot of people that we still don't have emails for. So you're always gathering and updating emails but direct mail, again, if you send it first class, if it's an invitation, you'll get it back that the people have moved or they've passed away or whatever it may be. It's a great way to continually update your database. Your database is a very valuable product that hopefully at one point when you exit out of this business, you've not put all this hard work into just walking away from it. You've got something very valuable to hand over to somebody else with children, birthdays, information, ages, everything you need so that someone can start taking that over. You've outlined who's in this past client sphere of influence database. How are you contacting and staying in front of these people? I am very, very diligent about structuring my day. And every day, with the exception of the days off that I take, is spent in the morning in Top Producer or any other contact management program. You have the ability to enter special dates and reasons to call a client. For instance, if there is a rate drop or it was time to refinance, perfect opportunity. In Top Reducer, you can pull the dates that someone bought. So if they've not refinanced and you know it was 2007 or 8 when interest rates were higher, it was a perfect opportunity to pull those people and call. But when we go to settlement, we always have them fill out a sheet, which we label my favorite things, which at settlement when I'm there with them, and I know that there are areas where people don't attend settlement with their clients, but I find it's the perfect time to wrap up a transaction, to bring them a little something, to 
laugh and meet the people that have bought their property or the sellers, that it's a very relaxed and, and joyous event and, and a good thing to attend for PR. With the sheet I bring, I make a joke of it saying that I need them to fill it out because we celebrate special days and we also like to give them things that we know they like. Nothing worse than bringing wine to someone who doesn't drink. So we have a lot of criteria, whether it's hobbies, the music that they like to listen to, favorite color, do they drink wine or alcoholic beverages, where they like to travel, birthdays, their child's birthdays, pets if they have them, and their wedding anniversaries. And then when I bring it back to the office, and if they don't answer a question, I'll sort of interview them for fun. And if they don't give you a year on their birthday, usually the settlement attorney takes a photocopy of their driver's license anyway, because when you enter it into the contact management program, you want to know how old they are. So we get all that information and enter it. Top producer makes it very easy to do that. So you have reminders. So every day, like this morning, I go in and however many people's birthday it is, whether it's an anniversary, whether it's a child's birthday. Now, my leads manager has been very helpful also that if it's a child's birthday, I'll send it to Tom, who will generate a free e-card to that child based on their age and anything that they like or any information that he has within their contact record. So if I say one of the children is a nut about cars, he might send an e-card that has a car theme. But he usually does all the children's cards. And sometimes we'll send anniversary cards. But it's a perfect opportunity for me to pick up the phone and call those people or type them a personal email saying, you know, I noticed it was your birthday or call them on their birthday. And usually everyone is in a good mood on those special days. And I never find I have to ask them for business. People know why you're calling and they're so impressed that you're in touch that as you get into a conversation, it pretty easily comes up as to whether or not they're having another child, if in fact, you know, they're thinking about a move or adding something to their house. And I always tell them that I'm happy with any advice on that. I had a couple that I sold back in 2000 that because we do blast emails of our open houses to the city that they're located in, they came by one of my open houses. I had no idea they were looking. It turns out that his business is going awry and they want to downsize. And so because I've been calling them, even though I've not really spoken to any of them, I've left voicemails and done emails over the years, you know, I was their go-to person, and his comment was, because you've kept in touch all these years, that we wouldn't have thought of going to anyone else. It's that kind of contact that they never forget you, that you're always remembering them on special occasions. You're calling them when there's a rate drop or something important or something they should know. And, of course, we'll talk later about the annual client party that we have, which if they, even if they don't come, they get an invitation, which is, again, another way to stay in touch with people. So I probably call each client or email them at least four times a year in addition to the mailings they're getting every other month. That's really the basis of your business. It's the least expensive way to keep business by picking up the phone and making a telephone call or sending an email. They know you already. I don't think you have to hammer them for business or referrals. I mean, it's certainly fine to say, are you aware of anyone moving? But, you know, people are pretty smart. They know that you're looking for business. You let them know that you're not too busy and that you would handle any client that they refer to you with the utmost care. But it's just been the 
trademark of our business and, um, you know, getting so much past clients through influence referrals. You mentioned that you block out these times in the morning. How much time do you block out? And do you have a goal for how many people you're trying to contact that day? It really varies. I time block all during the week. And I try to encourage our team members to do it as well. I, I think everyone is probably most proficient early in the day. So I do my calling and my contact and the most important things I need to do the first part of the day and then schedule appointments in the afternoon. But my team knows when I'm available for appointments. So my husband, who is my partner, we try to take Thursdays off pretty religiously and then half days on the weekends a lot because I still think open houses are worthwhile and I do do them certainly in the farm areas that I'm in to meet sellers and to network during that, that time. But, you know, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and part of the weekends, I'm available, and they know when those times are. So when that calendar is open, they can, can schedule, usually without checking with me. So Mondays, I usually spend from, I, I'm usually on the computer by 8, 8.30 in the morning and working straight on through. But that's the day that I call my sellers any buyers that I may be working with, or prospective clients in the future, in addition to birthdays, anniversaries, or anyone else that I'm calling. So in Top Producer, you get a list of people that you're to call that day. So there may be days when there are 75 people to call, and there may be days when there are only 20 to 22. So it just depends. But every day, there's always someone to call, And because I make sure I make every call every day, you're on that program and you're caught up. You mentioned for your past clients in Sphere of Influence, you're also doing a mail-out every other month. What what is that? What are you mailing out? Well, it's the same mailer because I try to keep it simple. The mailer to the Sphere is not talking about their neighborhood in particular. What I'll do is, is choose properties in many different areas. So let's say I had someone buy on Capitol Hill in the district and my farm areas are located in Maryland. So for the person that lives on Capitol Hill or anywhere else, I might have properties that I've sold in Bethesda, Silver Spring, the district, Potomac, all over the area to show that we're active because obviously I'm not going to be catering to their neighborhood in particular but that we do sell everywhere. So usually if you've had a good relationship with a past client, I'm listing someone's property on Capitol Hill, and I would not have been their first choice because there's so many people that farm that area so diligently, and they know that I don't do the bulk of my business there. But because they were a referral to me and I sold them a property, they felt very confident in listing with me with their home on Capitol Hill. So I will stay in touch with those kinds of people, and usually your past clients will list with you if they've had a good experience, even though you're not the quote-unquote neighborhood expert. So what I may send them is just an update in general about something, you know, I'm writing an article now about people that want to rent a room out in their house or turn their basement into an accessory apartment and what the rules are that govern that. And so that'll be a little different geographically. It might be a bit different in D.C. than it is in Maryland. But I'll be sure that I tailor that article to both sets of people. But it's usually of interest because I've met with a lot of single clients that 
might be older that are looking at renting out their basement or renting a room in their house to help offset the cost. So it's always something that somebody would be interested in. Last month it was about, you know, if you're selling an estate or a deceased parent or relative's house or just looking to size down, here are some considerations that you might have and resources that you may reach out to that would make it easier. And by the way, we can handle that whole process for you one-stop shopping. So it's always something that relates to real estate. You mentioned your annual past client party. Tell us about that. That's also a wonderful thing to do. Even if you're not a quote-unquote party person, we've tried to really diversify that to attract, you know, I know there are people that do an annual holiday party at their home every year, or they do the same event or a picnic. What we try to do is do something a bit different every year so that we attract different parts of our client base. So in the days when the money was rolling around 2005 and 2006, we actually did a casino night one year, and then one afternoon the following year was a lobster and champagne party. And we've done baseball games, and we've done a picnic in the park, and trying to appeal to families, and then the casino night was more the adult crowd. Last year, I did something just for the ladies' clients. I had a very upscale ladies' tea and champagne afternoon where it was beautifully done. It turned out to be an incredibly gorgeous day. I had a lot of the women that were my past clients show up and network with each other. It was a lovely afternoon and extremely successful, and I created a little slideshow that I sent to all of them. We always do that after all our client parties, put together a very nice slideshow to show people what it was like and all the clients who may have missed it. This year, we decided to do a dinner mystery murder. There's a past client of mine who is an actress with a troupe of people that do sort of this what they call dinner theater, although it's not going to be a dinner, but they put on a whodunit scenario and we're going to make the theme Halloween because we're doing it two days before Halloween. So it's a haunted house murder mystery. And again, we're doing it at our club. If you all belong to a club, whether it's a country club or you know a civic organization, whatever, it's a wonderful place where people know you there that you can have these events that make it easy and it's low cost to rent the room. And again, we have our settlement attorneys and everyone else helping to fund this. And again, if you keep track of the business you're giving them, it's easy to say to our settlement attorney, look, we passed you 50 deals last year. So he's splitting the cost with us. And then our service providers, which are the home inspectors or whatever, are you know, we'll have very little money out of pocket is the bottom line. And this particular one is going to cost a little more than most of them. I think this one's probably going to be around $8,000. But with the added help, it's so well worth after you're right off doing it and doing it well. We're able to have an open bar, heavy hors d'oeuvres, and costumes optional. And the invitation that's already gone out, we've, we're going to have to limit it to 150 people because we often have two to 300 people that want to come to these events. But, you know, it's people from all walks of life. It also gives you an opportunity to get on the phone with your past clients and personally invite them. You can update emails. You can update addresses when you send these out. But people are delighted to attend these kind of things. And if you make them fun and you make them good, people do want to come. Have you seen a 
direct relationship with business uh, from these annual client parties? Oh, there's no question about it. I mean, I think whenever you can reconnect with your clients face-to-face, because it's like a huge room of face-to-faces. So people recognize people within your client database that you didn't know knew each other. Everyone's singing your praises. You have an opportunity to stand up and thank everyone for their continued support in business and how much you appreciate their referrals. Everyone's having a good time and laughing, and they remember that kind of thing. I just think it's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. And I've had people and connected with clients that I've sold, you know, 20, 25 years ago. So that never loses its uh, momentum or appeal. Let's talk about your team. Could you list all the positions on your team? Sure. I have two full-time admin. One is really kind of an office manager that's been with me for eight or nine years. She helps me negotiate contracts. She's licensed. She's extremely good at what she does. She's an older woman that is, is very knowledgeable and experienced. So when I'm not here or traveling, she is able to procure price reductions, negotiate contracts, and deal with every situation that comes up. So I feel very confident to have her running the operation. When people have a partner, usually they scatter their goings out of town so that one is there when the other goes and so forth. When you're married to your partner, you want to go away together. And so it's very prohibitive that, you know, who's really watching the shop while you're gone. And the buyer agents, although very good at what they do, are not quite as proficient on the listing end or dealing with the clients where Joyce has just been great with that. So she's not only sort of the office manager, but the closing manager, which is the more difficult side of the transaction, really. And then I've got a listing manager that she's a very organized person that prepares the folders and watches the listing and the listing process. She hires the contractors. She orchestrates whether we do pre-inspections, pre-termites, the staging efforts, and so forth. She's able to look to make sure that all the paperwork, our contracts are so incredibly numerous pages here. I think they're up to 60, 65 pages at this point. But to make sure that everything is filled out, that all of the many hundreds of websites are loaded, our websites in particular, we have a personal property website for each property. So it's it's very labor-intensive. I then have four buyer agents, two of which I've hired in the last year. And one of them was right out of college. And he has just been terrific for the group. He is so excited and full of new ideas and has no problem with rejection and is in that office at 8 in the morning prospecting and working expires and for sale by owners. He's gotten me numerous appointments, which I'm very delighted by and is very happy to be working with Bob and I to learn from us. And I say to all of our buyer agents that if you ever decide to go out on your own, because we keep track of the clients that we give them and that we procure, because if they leave, they're only able to leave with the clients that they have procured themselves through their sphere or their direct marketing. But that, you know, our hope is that they'll always stay with us. But if someone wants to go out on their own and to do their own thing, I don't think anyone could prevent that, nor should they. 
I think everyone needs to see the value of what they have when they have it. And there are velvet handcuffs, which are great, but if someone is really committed to moving on, I think everyone needs to part friends. And that way, people are less likely to be taking off with a lot of your people. And we have it set up that if one of our clients does call them back and not us, because that's their uh, experience with that particular agent, they pay us a referral for a year and a half. And after that, they can have them as a client. So we're very good about that up front. We also, in the last year, hired a woman who had been our appraiser and done quite a few pre-appraisals for us over the years. And that was really kind of a coup. She was looking to change professions. She's a very attractive woman and has never done the real estate side of the business, but knows appraising and house values in real estate and was licensed. So it was a terrific fit. She's able to go with me on my listing appointments and provide an appraiser's point of view on pricing, which has just been great. And my goal is to have her sort of be a listing assistant to me to help take on all the many steps of getting a house ready and work with the sellers until we get it on the market. So I'm not spending as much time doing that. And she's already begun to work with numerous buyers and and has done a very good job. So that's working out well. So it's, you know, I take buyer agents on that usually approach us. I've not really been looking for them. Fortunately, I think people tend to seek you out when you've been in the business a long time or reach a certain success level. And I'm very careful about who I hire. I give them not only a personality profile test, but uh, there's a, a test called Caliper, which is a very intensive from every direction about somebody's personality, work traits, sense of urgency, how smart they are, all of that, which we give everyone that test and then run it against everybody else's in the group because everyone has taken it to make sure it's a good fit. Because if you get one person that's not right, it can really drag the group down. And we like to hire and keep people rather than have any kind of a revolving door. I had a little bit of an epiphany about two to three weeks ago that both my listing manager and closing manager have felt that they're putting in so much time and energy because we're so customer-centric and client-centric that they're just running out of time. I mean, they'll get in there at 8 o'clock and sometimes not leave until 6, and I don't have anybody on overtime in the group, and I'm really feeling that with what we do, we may need a third administrative person. We tried virtual assistance for the listing and closing part, but without them having uh, contact with the public or being local, it just didn't work out as well. I'm fine with virtual assistance, like Tom being the leads manager or people doing special projects for us. My website providers and the website maintenance people are all virtual. I've got people that are writing and blogging and tweeting and all of that. They're virtual. That's fine. But the client interaction and the hands-on really needs to be local, in my opinion. So I just decided to bite the bullet, hire another full-time person, allow Joyce, who is my office manager, to work from her home four days a week because she's very self-motivated to try to take some... I mean, I think you really have to listen to your people that if the work is becoming just too much and they're tired or the atmosphere in the office is not as positive as it used to be because they are being overworked, 
even if it's perceived, you need to make sure that, in fact, it's the case and it's not just not working efficiently or not following a, a time schedule. If all those things are being adhered to, it may be that you need another person. So we're going to do that to make everyone's life a little easier and people a bit happier. You're the, the team leader. You're the rainmaker. You've also mentioned that you have a, a business partner, your husband, Bob O'Toole. How long have you and Bob been working together? Well, it's interesting. He was in the mortgage business for 17 years, and he was doing a lot of the mortgages for our clients. And the mortgage business, you know, and he came to work, oh, boy, this is awful. I should know for sure probably <laughs> about 18 years ago or so for at least as long as we've been married. And he decided to join forces because it seemed to make more sense to work together in real estate. He obviously was knowledgeable about real estate, but had never actually been a real estate agent. So it was not an easy transition. I know you've interviewed Nancy Jenkins, and one of the reasons that Bob decided to join forces with me full-time was his conversation with her husband, Brian Jackson, that he was in the mortgage business and joined forces with Nancy and encouraged Bob to do so. And then we've gone from there. And Bob has been great. I mean, Bob you know, pretty much does a little of everything. He works with some of our upper-level buyers. He sold the ambassador to Canada House and has worked. We have a lot of academics that we've worked with, and Bob becomes very close with them in the Canadian community. And then he'll list their homes when they sell. He helps manage the office to some degree. He handles the payroll. He helps field any sort of... Uh, issues that the admin might be having. So he's sort of a uh, little bit of everything, I guess, as well as trying to support me, too. Now, you've been doing this for a while, then, working with your husband. What's the secret to success of working with your spouse? <laughs> Everyone asks that question. You know, it's interesting that a lot of people say, I could never work with my spouse, I'd kill them. It's interesting. It's, it's worked out. I think that real estate is the profession that you're on the go a lot and we spend a lot of separate time because I work from home a lot. I have a home office where I can have some peace and quiet and stay out of the staff's way. But everyone is on the run with appointments, but you do have a unified goal and philosophy about business so that when we're together, we're able to talk about our clients and what we've done and the bigger picture for the business when we go on conferences together, we're both learning the same things. So it's actually ended up being a positive experience. I think when everyone's working toward the same goal and has the same problems and issues, it's great to be able to share all that and to share in the success of our team. So I think we've built a wonderful team. We've become very close to the buyer agents. And so we enjoy time together. In fact, we're having a event for them at our house in two days where we all just spend some time together because a couple of them have gotten married since they've been working for us and two of them have just had their first child. So, you know, we've lived through all of that and they've become sort of extended family. So it really has been a positive situation. We try very hard not to discuss business while we're home or together unless we're in sort of our office within the house. So if we have to discuss something, we discuss something there but every other area of the house and other occasions that we attend, business is off limits. 
Otherwise, I think it can get the better of you, and you do need to have time as a couple to enjoy each other away from all that. Well, Melinda, you have a, a lot of people running around. You've got a lot of projects you're working on, expenses. Agents are going to be listening, and they're going to have a question in the back of their mind. Are you profitable? <laughs> Luckily, we are profitable, and I think that that's part of keeping your numbers. I'm very protective of what we spend. If something's not working or not being used, we eliminate it. I keep an extremely detailed profit and loss statement, which became very, very useful. We're being fully audited by the IRS for 2010, 2011. I never have been before. So that's a whole nother conference call (laughs) about how agents (laughs) need to get ready for that because it's really something. But by keeping a detailed profit and loss and, and very close records on what you're spending, you know, you can look at that. Um, I know you'd asked earlier about a business plan. Well, your profit and loss and expenses and tracking your numbers and your metrics are all part of that business plan. If you're spending 3800 on Tiger, what's the return in our pocket from that? After the subsidies and, and after the buyer agents pay you, how much am I making on that? In addition, because you're trying to generate business but have it still be profitable, we do the most low-cost and efficient marketing that we can. Yes, we do our direct mailing, but we've extended it so that it's every six weeks, not every month. We do a lot of phone, on-the-phone and email contacts so that, and, and free e-cards. We have our client party that is paid for, our renovation and dumpster day, again, is subsidized. So we're really trying to offset those costs by being able to give business to service providers fairly religiously to track their numbers so that we can always make a case for getting more money from them and to keep our costs down, you know, as much as possible. So we're running the entire business at about 40 to 45 percent and then profitable with the rest. So we're very proud of that you know, trying not to spend an inordinate amount of money on things that are not necessary. Did I understand correctly that your net profit margin is somewhere in the neighborhood of 55 to 60%? Yes, probably 55% is probably more realistic. And by hiring this other person, because our salaries are fairly high here, I'm making a real investment to put out another fifty, fifty-five thousand for a full-time person. But if I do that, I'm anticipating that that person more than pays for themselves. And I tell all of the people that, that join as a team member that their job is to help pay for themselves. So I really make it clear that I want them to bring business to us, whether they want to, you know, show someone on the weekends or do it that way or actually give us referrals that we list and sell. So they've been pretty good about that, but I think it's very important that their sphere and the people that they know and their relatives are all working with us so that they really pay for themselves, and that's extremely important to me. So when I hire this person, I would anticipate that we not only recoup 100% of their salary but even do more and make the atmosphere in the office a happier place as well. We started to go a little bit into time management and time blocking earlier. How long have you been doing time blocking and what's the secret to making that work? I 
have been coached and have gone to conferences for years. And Bob Bolin, who is married to Lillian Montalto, both are extremely, unbelievably, extremely successful real estate agents. I coached with Bob for years, and he wrote the book Clarity, which if anyone is interested in an extremely good read, he is the most organized and proficient real estate agent that I think I've almost ever known. And he walks the talk, and time blocking has been something that he has just ingrained in me for years. I think that a lot of people in real estate are either I or D personalities. I'm probably an I that has a D focus only because it's learned behavior. But you tend to be, as a D or an I, a bit scattered or very quick in what you do and short attention span. So to become organized and to do what needs to be done, if you don't schedule your day, I mean, I'm always scheduling my day at night before I shut down for the following day. So I already have what I know are going to be my calls in the morning. I look at what appointments I may have in the afternoon. I even set days within the week that I accomplish projects because we always have these follow-up ideas and projects and things we want to learn and implement, websites we want to visit. But I time block, okay, I'm going to take two hours on this day each week to learn a new sort of technological advancement or how to use an app or do something more efficiently on my iPad that I set that time aside so that when the staff is looking at scheduling, they know to always schedule around that. And I'm one of those people that I'm really not good after 6.30 at night. I never present contracts in the evening. And I can't remember the last time I did one on a weekend. That changes a little bit if you're representing a buyer. I'm fortunate that I do mostly listings. When you are representing a buyer, sometimes you're at the devices of the listing agent. And if they're going to present at night or in the weekend, sometimes you don't have a choice. But I'm not working with as many buyers these days. But in terms of the listings, I think that you're freshest and probably more in tune during the day. And the reason I like to do it during the week is because lenders are available, people are available, they're in front of their computers, and agents always thank me for not having this go into 9, 10 o'clock at night. So again, if you explain to your clients up front that I'm much better in the morning, I'll be on the computer at 8 o'clock, but as it starts to get to 6 to 6.30, I'm winding down. Is there a breakfast appointment, a lunch appointment, or later in the afternoon, can you leave work a bit early so that we can meet? And I'll tell you, 99 times out of 100, it's not a problem. It's an important event for them, and I rarely have a problem scheduling during the week. A lot of people work from home. A lot of people can leave work early. Some people take a day off during the week, or I'll meet with them over the weekend. That works fine, too, in my time blocking, but I've pretty much eliminated nights. So if you explain to your clients what day you're taking off and that, you know, you work every other day and you need this day and there will always be someone there to help them, but this is for your sanity, I have it down that all my sellers and potential clients know that I call them every Monday without fail and that they'll always hear from me on that day so that it prevents them from calling throughout the week. If they need something on a more minimal basis, they can be in touch with Eleanor Joyce at the office if it's just a question about something, but they know they'll hear from me, so they save their questions and their concerns 
for that Monday phone call. And they always say, you know, Monday's with Melinda. I know you're going to be calling, and here's all the questions, and I give them the wrap-up of the week and the feedback and what's going on with their listing or where they are in the process of their sale. So that sort of organization, if you anticipate people's, manage their expectations is the words I'm looking for about what they're likely to expect from you and then make sure you stick to it. You rarely have anyone complaining about you being in touch. They know when they're going to hear from you and you're blocking that time and, and taking back your life. You've mentioned a couple times you do a lot of tracking, a lot of numbers, a lot of metrics. What are the, say, three or five most important metrics that you look at to monitor your business? Well, I think that they're all important, but we've really been looking at our number of face-to-faces each week so that we know how many people we're meeting with and then how many actually come to fruition so that you have, you know, if, if a buyer agent is having 12 face-to-faces but only succeeds with two clients, you know, maybe the scripts aren't good enough. You know, maybe they're not compelling enough. And so you might want to work with those people. I mean, our lead buyer agent probably works with 90% of the people that he meets with. So he's doing a good job, and it's working. Our source of business, where the leads are coming from, you need to know what marketing is working, working so that at the beginning of the year in your business plan, that's where you're going to put your money. One of the reasons that I'm even thinking about hiring another person translates more into client care because I don't want the people on the phone with our clients feeling overworked or sounding tired. If the people need more attention and we're getting a lot of our business from sphere of influence and past clients, if they leave a raving fan and, and they're your mouthpiece everywhere in the community, that's what you want, and you're going to get that with exemplary service. I think, too, knowing where you are from each month compared to the month of last year. So are you ahead on your transactions? Are you ahead on your GCI? Where are you now in August compared to where you were in August a year ago? That's very important for you to look at so that you can see what your momentum is and and where you need to be. And also, every time you give business to an attorney, uh, to a lender, to an insurance person, to a home inspector. Keep track of that so that when you look down at that, you can say to a title attorney, you know, I've given you 30 settlements this year. Isn't that great? And here's what we'd like you to do for us. Because oftentimes your lender, and the one thing I track with the lenders also is, because this is more important with lenders and title attorneys, how many leads have we given you versus how many leads they closed? So if you say to a lender, look, we gave you 50 leads and you only closed 10 of them, they can't say to you, well, look, I only got 10 pieces of business from you. In reality, you gave those people 50 names. Whether or not they were able to engage them with business is something else. So if you have lenders that are closing 25 people out of 50 versus the ones that are doing 10 out of 50, that's something you may want to look at in terms of, the rates they're able to offer, how convincing or well-versed they are at at getting that client to come to them. Melinda, what drives you? (laughs) Um, I think at this point in my career, probably job well done. I probably take it too personally when someone's not happy. 
I think that's the I and me versus being a total D. I try to think in terms of if someone isn't happy, you know, next, and that sometimes the more you do for people, the less appreciative they are. And I'm still well aware of that, and I, I handle that much better than I used to. But I really like people to be satisfied with what we've done because I know how hard we work. And usually you know that you're the best person for the job and you do a better job than almost anybody else out there. And if something goes wrong with a client, I want to look at, is there something we could have done better? Is there some way that we could have improved our service? Because when you have a raving fan, when it's all said and done, and they go on and on about how much you've changed their life, how well you did for them, that they're going to recommend you to everyone, that makes it all worthwhile. You know, I think that you, at a point in your career, don't worry about the money coming in as much anymore. I mean, it's important to look at your numbers and to track that, but if you do the very best job and you are the best, people will seek you out. And then you're not having to beat the bushes or do cold prospecting. You know, you never heard me say that I do cold calling or any of that. I like warm prospecting. I like past clients. I like geographic farming because you have something in common. They know who you are. And it's a much easier way to do business, and you have to go on far less appointments to be able to procure business than you do when you're trying to deal with cold business. If you're going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Because having done this completely on my own and having felt like an island with very few people to really explain what your challenges were, I mean, I think anyone who tries to go to their manager, their manager is often managing numerous people and it's hard for them to be there for you every time they're needed. And obviously some managers are better than others, but if I were going to a new area or starting over, I would definitely join a group because I think that learning from someone who is one of the best is a first-hand knowledge that you're never going to get anywhere. Remember, your managers either didn't sell real estate for a long period of time, were better managing than they were realtors, or haven't you know, been doing it for years and years. So when you watch someone, when you can go on a listing appointment or a buyer appointment with a pro and, and see that firsthand over and over again and live with that agent for months, that's information and value that you'll never get anywhere else and you don't pay for other than if you have a deal, you share part of it with them. But I truly believe if you look at the split you get from most companies that even with what a rainmaker may take of your, uh, the portion of your commission, you're not paying for the marketing, the staff, the training, any of that. You know, you've got your personal expenses, but I think if you look closely, you can be more profitable in a scenario like that than ever starting on your own. Then, if you position yourself correctly, it's possible you could take over that person's business when they retire or become more of a partner if you're invaluable to them. And I've seen lots of people that have worked for an uber-successful agent that ended up just taking over their business. And I'm certainly looking at some of my buyer agents hoping that as I start slowing down a bit, and knock on wood, I hope that's happening, that they carry the flag and continue this whole thing so that when people start businesses now, I think it's better not to necessarily have your name but some sort of group name so that anyone can be within the group and it, it makes sense. 
So that's a bit of advice as well. There's a group here called the Pure Energy Team, and there's other names that people have, but it means anyone can work within that framework and, and carry the torch. So having that kind of mentor, if you don't do that and are working alone at the moment, then coaching also is an excellent thing to do. Find someone that's absolutely terrific that you talk to once a week and maybe have them on call from time to time that if you have a stumbling block, they're making you accountable and they're making sure that you do what you need to do, give you the kick in the rump that you may need from time to time, someone you have to answer to. You treat the business as a business and you plan each day so that you're not sitting there wondering what to do. And that, I think, for anyone will, just by the very nature of following a schedule and being accountable, make somebody more productive. Do you think the top agent interviews, like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent, are valuable? Well, you're talking to someone who's <laughs> one of their major influences in life, and we talked about it earlier, was Howard Brenton. It was Howard Brenton that brought top agents together that were selling real estate in present time that you would go to his conferences and it would be those people that were speaking about how they went from 50 transactions to 100 transactions, from 100 to 300 transactions. People actually doing it, how they did it, and sharing everything. And he had a Star of the Month club. A few of us were interviewed. Well, not a few of us. I think he ended up interviewing about 300 people. But there were agents that he chose that he felt were trying to lead the industry, not only in what they were trying to give back, but their business prowess and how successful they were. And I remember listening to those tapes long before I was ever interviewed by Howard and just the wealth of knowledge and these people giving of everything that they went through, the pitfalls, the successes, the challenges, how they started out, what their stories were, what worked, what didn't, openly and honestly just changed my life. And it's how it got me going to these conferences and meeting these people who many became my idols. There are still people today, you know, Alexis Bolin, Bob Bolin, Lillian Montalto, Nancy Jenkins, and Laura that you've interviewed that I have learned from and listened to that have been pivotal in my career. And whenever I would run into a stumbling block, I could pick up the phone and call them about how to handle it. And we still, within the stars, have a network where we're able to reach out to each other by email to solve a problem. So the learning never stops. So long answer to a short question. But these kind of interviews, I think, help someone if it touches one person's life or career or makes them change something that they're doing, it's been all worthwhile. Well, Melinda, I've come to the end of my questions I have for you today. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we haven't addressed? I know that we didn't go into technology, and, and I don't think that that's something that needs to, a lot of time to be spent other than I think agents need to know enough to be dangerous with technology that as younger people start entering the marketplace and we're learning how to communicate with younger people, that the baby boomers and people like myself have always been sort of phone-oriented and face-to-face, which I still believe plays an extremely critical role. 
when negotiating and when talking to people of anything of note. But I think because young people look at things differently and they function in a different way, having younger people in your group, sort of learning from them and being able to be an asset to all age groups is extremely valuable. So keeping up with what's out there, continuing to improve and learn and know enough about these things, even if you have to hire someone to bring you up to speed, which is what I do, you know, an hour a week, what's new, what's the latest, what, what is working, what are people doing, social media and so forth without getting overwhelmed by it is a good track to take. And we don't want to be so pigeonholed into one way of doing business that we're not open-minded enough and, and growing and, and being a service to all ages. Well, Melinda, you offer excellent advice. Your loyalty to the same company for your entire career is the same loyalty you demonstrate with your past clients and team members. The rewards include steady referrals and a strong team. Your business continues to thrive by focusing on people who already know, like, and trust you. Giving back through your community events continues the mutually beneficial cycle, and it works. You're now a member of the Billion Dollar Agent Club. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who restructured his business for lower production and higher profits. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.